I've basically almost exclusively hired people who have ADHD or autism because I figured that they're going to understand the target market and they're going to care about the product that we're solving as well. And maybe that's something that could be done more broadly in the digital health space that if you're building an app to help with depression, then hire people who have been through that pathway before and who've experienced the challenges. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates? Compelling message that scales? Competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Welcome to the Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. We're so excited today to have Jeremy Nagel here with us. Jeremy is a neurospicy software developer and a passionate startup founder. During his after hours, Jeremy channels his energy into his current side business, FocusBear, focusbear.io, where he builds software-enabled tools to help neurodiverse individuals thrive in the workplace. Previously, Jeremy's entrepreneurial spirit let him develop a, an SMS integration for Zoho CRM called Smooth Messenger, which he sold to Message Media, where he now works. So Jeremy has previously worked in ed tech and clean tech companies, and he graduated with a Bachelor of Environmental Science in Bioinformatics and Data Mining from Monash University in Melbourne. So welcome. Great to be on the show. Thanks, Maureen. All right. So uh, we always start with define the word warm up. And uh, so your thoughts and ideas and opinions on these words. So I have three. The first one is founder. Founder, I, I actually really like this term because in the past, people used to call themselves CEO, even if it was a really small startup. And I found that a little bit ostentatious, to be honest. And whereas founder conveys the idea that it could be small, but we're still passionate about it and it can grow into something quite large. I, I like that, for example, the founder of Atlassian and Canva, which are two very large tech companies in Australia, they still call themselves founders rather than CEO. And that makes me feel, it feels like it conveys a sense of creativity and energy and building something new. That's great. I love that definition. Uh, and uh, you're going to make me rethink what I put on my business cards. <laughs> uh, second one, near and dear to your heart, neurodivergent or neurospicy, which I thought was a really interesting term you used on your LinkedIn profile. Hmm. Yeah, so the, I guess the dictionary definition of neurodivergent is someone who is part of a neurominority where they might have ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, dyslexia, Down syndrome. There's about 15 different conditions or traits that would fit into that, that definition. And I, the reason I prefer neurospicy is because I find neurodivergent feels very medically and it's more in the deficit model rather than playing into the strengths. Because for example, with ADHD, it's an, an attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity. 
but it doesn't really convey the positive aspects as well, that there, there can be a great amount of creativity that comes with having ADHD. And the same with, with autism, that it's not necessarily a death sentence to someone's career and someone's social life, that there can be a lot of positive aspects to being autistic. And that's what I've experienced myself. And so I like to lean into the idea of neurospicy, which conveys difference, but more in the sense of variety being the spice of life rather than difference being bad. That's a, yeah, that's a great definition and a really terrific point about uh, the medical terms often being from a deficit perspective, right, as opposed to flipping it and the kind of glasses half full and the strengths perspective of it. So hmm. great, great, great point. Uh, and a, a word near and dear to my heart, message or messaging. Hmm. Yeah, I guess for me, messaging is around how do I communicate in a way that isn't jargony, that is going to resonate with the people that I'm trying to help. And that can be a bit of a challenge if I'm doing something new. But with Focus Bear, there, there are a few, I guess, competitors out there, but they're not really targeted at neurodivergent or neurospicy people. So communicating how it's different has been the opportunity and the challenge. And that's where I, I don't know that I've actually got it 100% right, but being able to experiment with different messages and, and seeing which ones resonate has been my, my journey over the last 18 months. That's, yeah, that's great. It is, I think, you know, any good messaging in any great, like any great company is a work in progress, right? Hmm. We learn and we do, the goal is at least to do better, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think there, you know, to, to roll back to um, your current kind of, you know, focus bear, I mean, what inspired you to start Focus Bear? I mean, and how did your personal experience with ADHD and I think you had said ASD level one mm -hmm. uh, play a role in your kind of entrepreneurial journey? Hmm. The inspiration for Focus Bear was the sale process for Smooth Messenger, my last business. At the time that I was negotiating the sale, I was going through probably the most stressful experience of my life in that I had another job that was paying the bills for me. I was working on Smooth Messenger as a, another business, trying to keep it afloat, which involved having to wake up very early to look after US customers, as the majority of customers were in North America, and then also dealing with customers in Australia and Europe. And I was feeling stretched very thin already prior to them reaching out and saying, hey, we'd be interested in buying it. And then on top of that customer support burden, I then also had lawyers and accountants that I was talking to. And it just felt like I had no time for self-care at a, at a moment when I actually really needed to be able to de-stress because the negotiations got quite tough at some points and I was very attached to the outcome. 
So I knew that it would help me if I meditated and it would help me if I exercised because they, they were self-care practices that I had done in the past that I couldn't seem to get myself to do it, that I'd wake up and I'd just have this gnawing pit of anxiety in my stomach and the way that I solved that rather than going and meditating, which would have been a, a better way, was I'd wake up and I'd go straight to my emails and check <laughs> what good or bad things would be awaiting me there. And normally it didn't actually make me feel less stressed. It just it got me into hyper-focus and then I'd look up and it was three hours later and I no longer had time to do those self-care practices that were so crucial for actually being able to de-stress but also be able to focus. Because as someone with ADHD, I've realized that some of those practices are really crucial to me being able to actually channel my hyper-focus that if I don't meditate, then I end up being very scattered and I, I do operate more in the, the deficit model of attention that I'm, I'm constantly looking around and I'm, I'm doing 10 different things and not really making substantial progress on one of them. Whereas if I exercise and I meditate, then I'm able to, to move forward with the harder things on my to-do list and I make a lot more overall progress. And I wanted something that would actually stop me from checking my emails first thing because I identified that as being the real <laughs> destroyer of my self-care plans. So that was the original motivation for Focus Bear to help me with my own challenges. And essentially what it did in the early days was it took over the whole screen and it said, you can't do your meditation until you do your meditation sorry, you can't check your emails until you've done your meditation and exercise. And it would have a countdown timer and showed a YouTube video of someone meditating. And I just copied along with that. And it was really effective for me. I just started with a very small morning routine, 15 minutes in total, because that's all the time that I had at that point. And then I progressively grew it from there, both in terms of the strength of the app, but also my own personal morning routine that I went from doing five minute runs in the morning to now it's more like half an hour every day and just progressively increasing it by one minute per week until I was very happy with how my morning routine looked. Now we've got some other people using it as well. Other Typically other people with ADHD that tends to be the target audience that it resonates most with. It's been very satisfying for me personally. That's yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. So you, uh, it's a bit of a crude term, but people talk about eating your own dog food, right? The yep. idea that if you've really in software, right, in SaaS, if you've developed some software tech, you ought to be, for customer service, you ought to be running your customer service on it. Or uh, as you said, it was something that you developed uh, and then uh, decided it could, it could help other people as well. So... Uh, yeah, and that's really helpful compared to, say, with Smooth Messenger, where I didn't have a day-to-day -day need for sending SMS. It was a little bit hard for me to dog food it, whereas mm -hmm. I use Focus Bear for hours every day, both in terms of the habit features and also the distraction blocking features while I'm working. It makes it easier to test it and easier to talk about it. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who could use that, <laughs> even if... They don't have an official diagnosis of ADHD, I think. It, it feels to me like this culture is, right, TikTok and texting and uh, there's a lot, there's a tremendous amount of distraction 
and a tremendous amount of small minor things that can uh, eat away at focus. There's mm, absolutely there's something around like for every every time you're distracted from if you're focusing on something every time you're distracted something like it adds 15 minutes mm. because it takes you a period of time to get back into it and to that level of focus that you were at before the notification popped up or someone knocked on your door before. Yeah, contact switching isn't good. <laughs> contact switching, there you go. I think there are a lot of people uh, who would benefit from that. Uh, so what, you know, as you, you were talking a little bit about competition and, you know, when you think about competition, because that's such an important part of building a message, right, to understand uh, how you set yourself apart and what that looks like. And um, I'm curious how you thought about that, uh, how you think about it now, where you think it's going in the future. And, uh, and also, what do, people, what do people get wrong about neurodivergence? It's kind of like next question. <laughs> hmm, okay. Yeah, the competition side, I guess the classical advice is it's great if there's competition because it shows that there's a market demand for it. And I think that's true. But I also like the blue ocean strategy where the author talks about the importance of finding a niche where there, there is potentially adjacent competition that they aren't directly serving that niche. And that's why I, I've gone, I've niched quite deeply towards the neurodivergent market because there are generic to-do lists which sometimes talk about being helpful for ADHD, but there aren't really any that are made by people with lived experience. And I think that that's pretty crucial because there are differences in terms of what people will trust and also how the app is structured. That's how I've lent into it that I'm... I mean, we've got a, a long list of competitors on, on our website. Some of our messaging has been, how are we different from Todoist? How are we different from Evernote? We've got about 50 competitors that we've identified that people may use in terms of helping them to be productive and helping them stick to habits. And that has been helpful just to position ourselves against them or in tandem with them. That in some cases, it's not really that we're better than them, but rather I personally use Evernote and I, I use some other apps as well, and they're very complementary and trying to position it that way that making a productivity stack composed of other apps is a, a good way to do it. We, we did a, a guest blog post recently with ClickUp, which was quite good for inbound traffic. And that, that's where it seems like it doesn't necessarily need to be competitors, but rather collaborators, that there's a lot of people trying to help overall people with their productivity and being able to work together on different aspects of it is a, a good way to do it. I think rather than fighting over the scraps of people who've already <laughs> identified that they want a distraction blocker. So I guess in terms of the other question you had around where does it lead to with people who are neurodivergent and what software they might be looking for. I don't, in the conversations I've had, it, it seems like there's not a great deal of awareness that software could help that 
there's a, a bigger market for that reason. It does require some education and we're going about that by working with influencers to try and talk about if you are, if you do have ADHD and you're struggling with distractions, there are things that can help in addition to the more, well, in addition to medication, which is definitely helpful for a lot of people. And in addition to working with an ADHD coach and some of the more metacognitive strategies, yeah, I think the message we're trying to convey is that you can try different things and a lot of them are low cost and low investment, both in terms of time and money. So try them out and find out which one resonates with you. Yeah, great, great points. I think this idea of collaboration is a really interesting one and something that having been in the med tech industry, medical devices for 30 years, uh, is not something that comes easily. <laughs> and so uh, more and more med tech has realized the advantage, particularly in kind of the digital health and kind of software field, to collaborations and partnerships. Can you talk or share about any successful partnerships or collaborations that have helped propel Focus Bear forward? Or how do you approach strategic alliances or collaborations that, you know, we could learn from. It, it's something we're in the infancy with, but the ClickUp example has been good where ClickUp has a, a guest blogging program and they, I applied to be a guest blogging partner and they were mm. happy to, to work with us. And we wrote a, a blog post around the top 10 apps for Focus. A ClickUp is number one, of course, and then Focus Bear is number two. And that ended up, it has led to some inbound traffic. And then in terms of other partnerships that we're looking at, there are some communities and some HR organizations that are going to be partners, the community around productivity. And I'm, I'm also very interested in going down more of the potentially the medical device pathway of, of working with the university and bundling in some, some tools around there's some game-based interventions, for example, to help people to focus that have some research backing. And I'm interested in bundling that into the app as part of a partnership with the university. So I think that does lend credibility and also opens up some more pathways for certain types of grant-based funding. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So this idea of communities, right? We all belong to kind of different communities. A lot of people on the in the let's just say in the digital space generally, right? Talk about communities, build communities. I'm a part of a couple of them. <laughs> uh, not med tech focused at all. Uh, so for med tech, that idea of building a community is a relatively new one, and certainly. The idea of using influencers, particularly in the social media side of the world, uh, typically we've gone to, you know, it's physicians, right, who are going to use or prescribe or, right, and more and more with digital health, you know, patients are a bigger part or healthcare consumers are a bigger part of the conversation. Um, what are some tips that you could give to folks around who are thinking about or trying to figure out this idea of communities and is it something they should do? Is it something they should sponsor? How do you think about that? Communities have been a big part of the product development process for me. 
there's a, a bunch of subreddits that, for example, ADHD programmers and ASD programmers, and then the, the larger one, ADHD, where I found it really helpful to, to be part of that, both in terms of listening to what people are posting and also posting myself and commenting and trying to generally be helpful in those communities to build up trust. And it has informed some of the way that we've built the app that I've posted early versions in those communities and had feedback from the people in the subreddits. That's been really helpful. I guess the, the challenge is to, to not appear spammy, especially on Reddit, that there's an aversion to that, that you can't be posting links all the time. But if there's an overall approach of trying to be helpful, and, and that's how I try and approach marketing in general, that the content that we're putting out, we're trying to generally provide useful content, both in terms of the communities, but also on our blog and our YouTube and our Instagram. And I think people appreciate that and that helps to build trust as well does take time and I'm not sure that actually sponsoring it works I, I think that tends to potentially come off the wrong way but if it's an organic thing where people in the community feel like you're an active participant and being helpful which takes a lot of time and takes time to build up then I, I found some benefits from that that's a great point about Reddit and being, and that's certainly an advantage that you have, right? That you are part of uh, those communities, um, but certainly other folks could join those communities. And as long as they are open and offering, you know, um, useful information, like you said, you approach marketing from the standpoint of education, uh, which I think is a really terrific way to do that. Um, that makes a great deal of sense and that you keep using the word trust, right? And so this concept of people talk about no like trust. Um, they have to know who you are, they have to like you, and then they have to trust you, right? That's the last, that's the last thing. Hmm. Hold on one sec. Bye, bud. See you later. That's my 13-year-old. He looks at Reddit. <laughs> So, uh, the, yeah, so I think the, what you're talking about with no like trust and talking about that third and most important piece, trust is critically important in, in the communities. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about, in, you mentioned using influencers. When you think about using influencers, uh, who do you choose? How do you choose them? Uh, how do you go about doing that? Hmm. Yeah, I've, I wouldn't say that my influencer strategy is completely bedded down. I've just started with that. The, the process that I followed was I initially worked with an agency that found some influencers for me and I haven't actually launched that campaign yet, so I can't really say how it is going to go. Hopefully it will work. But what I'm thinking about increasingly now is those were generic wellness influences. And I don't know that it's necessarily going to be a, a perfect fit, but I'm more going down there now looking at who do people trust in the ADHD and autism space and working with them. So I've 
had a partnership recently with a, a guy who's got a neurodivergent podcast. And that has been by far the most effective channel in terms of cost per acquisition that we, we sponsored a, a podcast and we got a huge number of clicks and, and signups from that. And I think it was because he actually tried out the app and has been using the app for several weeks himself. And so he was able to talk about how it had helped him. And that was very compelling then that when you talk about no like trust, they already knew him, they already <clears throat> liked him and trusted him. And so him introducing the product in a way where it felt authentic, it wasn't just a, an ad where it wasn't something that he had used himself. You might find it helpful, but more talking about how it had helped him. And that's the direction I'd like to go down, finding other people within the community, potentially existing users of the product and helping them to amplify their voices. That is a great point. You used the word authenticity, mm -hmm. right? That he had used it, he had tried it, and so he could speak from his experience. Uh, mm. And yeah, that that means that carries a lot of weight then. Yeah. Right, as opposed to, hey, there's this new thing you should try. Mm. <laughs> right. It comes it comes across differently. Mm. So yeah. yeah, that sounds tremendous in sponsoring podcasts. I am, of course, all for that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you think, so it's a really interesting way with uh, subreddits, uh, you're kind of at the leading edge of what people are doing, right? Becoming an active participant in subreddits, um, working with folks who are going to try and then speak to their very specific audience um, who already knows them and likes them, right, and trusts them. Uh, and I thought one, one thing was interesting is that you were initially, it seemed initially uh, going kind of the consumer route, which can be really challenging. And because uh, consumers are bombarded every day with thousands of messages, buy this, try that, do this other thing. Uh, and... You are looking at working, or you are currently working with physical therapists to provide home exercise programs that use uh, the Focus Bear app. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how did you identify this opportunity? What steps did you take to kind of decide to go into this market? Um, and kind of what, what benefits do physical therapists and potential patients have in the home marketplace mm. this is something we haven't gone that deep on yet due to regulatory issues but the inspiration for it was that i had been seeking advice from physical therapists around the exercises that we include in the focus bear app in terms of we've got micro workouts which people will do throughout the day that that's one of the things that can help with ADHD of regularly getting up and say doing some stretching or doing some star jumps, anything to get the blood flowing. And I was seeking advice in terms of how should we tailor those exercises to make them more relevant. And one of the physical therapists that I spoke to said, hey, this could actually be good for home exercise programs because there aren't good solutions right now. And I still do think there's some promise there. I've 
been a little bit cautious, cautious about going deeper on it due to concern around HIPAA that I want to, before we do anything like that, we need to make sure that we're going to be HIPAA compliant. Otherwise, there could be big penalties if we've got patient data around asking them how, how much did that hurt when you did that particular knee band exercise, for example. We don't want to get into hot water around that later. I, I do think there's some potential there. And like you were saying, in terms of other tech devices going via the physician route, I, I think that's an excellent way because it, it has the trust relationship already there and it, it means that it is very tailored to the individual and hopefully they're only recommending things that are going to be helpful to the person and, and not necessarily interventions which are the most profitable for the physician. It's a really, yeah, I hadn't thought about the use of uh, focus bear in that context, but there's certainly a huge swell in the availability of digital health apps, right, for a whole variety of different reasons. And uh, uh, different companies taking different regulatory pathways. Uh, so it's, it's been fascinating to follow. Impaired therapeutics, for example, which went the most rigorous path, like straight up med device path, ended up holding a handful of months ago. Hmm. They had, I think, three apps that they had regulatory clearance for in the United States, hmm. uh, specifically. So whereas other folks are doing something slightly different, like a little bit more of a middle-of-the-road strategy. <laughs> hmm. So, um, But that makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it from that standpoint, that if the physician recommends it, that that is some, right? That's obviously someone they know. They like because they showed up at their doorstep, <laughs> and there's some there's some trust from that ongoing relationship. So, so, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, and I guess the motivation for the physical therapist is that patient adherence to home exercise programs is normally very low, and mm. our model of having the micro workouts throughout the day for office workers, I, I think that actually works quite well. Works well for me. I've had some hip flexor issues in the past and I no longer have them because I do my stretches in the morning and throughout the day. There you go. There you go. I mean, I think that's something where community comes into play as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And motivation. There's some data around that in the community. So. Um, mm. Yeah. So that's, in, yeah, that's interesting as well. Uh, so, uh, what are, what are some of, are there any other things that you'd like to share around generating awareness? You've talked about subreddits and communities and influencers, podcasts, um, particularly, uh, my podcasters specifically in the space around ADHD and, um, neurodivergence. Anything yeah, else yeah. that, oh, go ahead, that either worked or actually didn't work that you tried? Sure. I, I'd like to talk in terms of the community side. The other thing that's been helpful is the listening side of community, of looking at what terms are being discussed. 
one thing that has come up in my participation in subreddits is there's been a lot of talk about skill regression from an ADHD context that people are finding that after they get diagnosed, skills that they previously were able to do quite easily start becoming less easy. And there weren't any credible blog posts about that at that point. And I ended up writing one and that's now our biggest source of traffic to the website. And it's very specific. The language used is coming straight from those subreddits and because we're able to use the, the learnings from those discussions. There's now, it's now ranked number one on Google and we get a lot of click through on that particular blog. So that, that's something that I'm becoming a believer of, of looking at what's trending say on TikTok and in subreddits and seeing that as where the discussion is likely to go and then writing content both in terms of blog posts and doing some, some YouTube videos and potentially posts on LinkedIn around those particular topics has been quite effective. That's a, right. That's a great point. It's, it's a bit like with TikTok with a trending, with a trending audio, right? Using trending audio. Uh, yeah. But finding the sub trends because what's trending on TikTok as a whole is probably not relevant to the particular business, <laughs> but finding within a, a particular niche of TikTok, like ADHD TikTok, can find things there. And I think that's, that's such a great example of really knowing your customer deeply and, and niching down, right? Knowing your target audience and also uh, resisting the what sometimes you'll say is, oh, you need a bigger market. You need to go broader. It can, it, more people can use this. I mentioned that at the beginning of this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but niching down and making sure that you really resonate and provide something that is super, super useful to the specific audience is more important to get traction early on. Right? Then, mm. then I'm going broader and, or going so broad as to, what was it? Um, and trying to be everything to everyone, you're nothing to no one. There's a, there are other versions of that cliche out there. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's very true. It's very hard to stand out then that there's the competitors that are going broad and they've got much bigger budgets. So it's not really going to get any cut through if we go really broad. Yeah, focus, 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 and language, language yep. and words, <laughs> skill yep. regression. Yeah, mm. it's a great example. It's a great, great example. Uh, mm. If folks are looking to develop other products for kind of specific niche markets in, uh, you know, kind of in med tech, but let's say, um, maybe more in digital health and kind of the app arena, uh, what kind of key lessons or kind of insights would you have for them based on your experience? Hmm. I guess it depends on if it's going to be a, a pure therapeutic device and it might require approval. The process is probably quite different, but I might speak from a device which is in the digital health space but isn't likely to require regulatory approval. And from that perspective, I think testing the, the standard advice around lean startup of 
testing very early and showing early versions of the product and not building too much up front is pretty key in terms of getting something that people are going to like because I in the early version of the app it was super strict and it would be very you basically couldn't really turn it off unless you put in a password and I had feedback that while that might be appropriate for me it wasn't really appropriate for other people and that's something that I could only learn once I put it in front of other people and got that early feedback. And then from there, we've continued to evolve. And sometimes the feedback has been really hard to interpret that people will just say, it's annoying. And I have to try and figure out, okay, what might make it annoying and strip back the aspects that were too invasive early on and add more settings, make the defaults in a way that they weren't going to be annoying for people and then still allow people like me who want a, a more intrusive solution to amp up the, the level of nudging. And I guess the other side of it too is in when you develop a product, I think it's key that the people working on it can empathize with the users. I've basically almost exclusively hired people who have ADHD or autism because I figured that they're going to understand the target market and they're going to care about the product that we're solving as well. And maybe that's something that could be done more broadly in the digital health space that if you're building an app to help with depression, then hire people who have been through that pathway before and who've experienced the challenges, who know the language that people are likely to use and can potentially give testimonials based on their own experience and that they're likely to actually use it and dog food it. That is, yeah, that is a really, it's a great, that's a great, great point. One of, one of the things I'm curious about in, yeah, it's certainly hiring people who, who are in the same, let's say, align with your target audience um, in doing that. And I think I saw that uh, you were attending, or it looked like you had attended a disability tech conference, and which is very broad, right? Covers a lot um, mm -hmm. with that with that word, and certainly deficit thinking. To your point earlier, uh, in the naming of that, uh, what what do you find often? We, I'll, I'll include myself. We, the general public. Um, doesn't understand about neurodivergent thinking, doesn't understand about ADHD, doesn't understand about um, autism spectrum disorder, um, particularly as it relates to you know, hiring people and managing people and um, what are we missing? Some of the conversation around hiring and recruiting is around the little almost microaggressions in the recruiting process that can make it harder for people who are neurodivergent to do well. So things, for example, that the, the classic thing with autism is not liking change in unexpected situations. So the, the gotcha approach to recruiting where you bring someone into an unfamiliar environment and ask them questions without giving them any context or background. And often those questions aren't actually the type of questions that someone would face during the job, that tends to be a bit unfair and potentially not a good test of someone's abilities. And instead, what I've been hearing is that the right way to do it is to send out the questions in advance, 
to potentially do a, a visual schedule for the day where it might include photos showing how to actually get to the place because Google Maps isn't necessarily going to get someone all the way into the room where they're going to be interviewed. So helping them with situations like that, providing some reasonable ad adjustments that are going to help them to do their best on the day. And often that actually helps everyone. For example, my wife isn't neurodivergent, but she recently did an interview process that I thought was quite enlightened where she was allowed to do it at home. They allowed you to do multiple takes of it. It was a video interview where you could see the questions and you could record your answer to it. And then if you felt like you didn't quite nail it the first time, you could record it again. And that really then allows people who are more conscientious and who really want the opportunity to invest deeply in that process and do more research. I guess there's also concerns around, does that then give an advantage to someone who has more free time? But I think it, it levels the playing field more than if you just go with the standard approach where it works well for people who are quick thinkers and who respond without uh, much prompting. And if you're doing, for example, if you're hiring an imp improv comedian, then that's absolutely the right <laughs> way to hire. <laughs> or someone who's going to be client facing and has to respond quickly to inquiries. But if you're hiring a programmer or a data analyst, project manager, I don't think I don't think optimizing for someone who is very quick in their responses is the right way to do it. That's a really great point, like all the way around uh, to make sure that people know what they're going to be answering to allow for folks who are, I'm definitely someone who will jump into a meeting and we go through and we make decisions and we're done, right? But I know that I work with <laughs> other folks who need to sit with it for a bit, right? Um, my mom was one of those people, is one of those people. Uh, you know, I'd say, mom, can I sleep over at whoever's house? I'll think about it and tell you tomorrow. And I'm like, I meant tonight. <laughs> I need 24 hours. And I was like, as a kid, I didn't make, made no sense to me at all. I thought, what is, I don't get it. But as, but as an adult, I certainly do, right? We, different people process information differently. Hmm. and need more time to think about it. And so um, I think the idea of sending out the questions in advance, right? It's, if you want to test for quick thinking, that's one thing. <laughs> if you're looking hmm. for thoughtfulness, right? And longer term thinking and that, that providing them makes a lot of sense or allowing multiple video takes. So. Yeah. And also once they've been hired, giving them the agenda for a meeting in advance so they can do some thinking beforehand. Lots of little things are often part of the universal design spectrum that making these changes often benefits everyone. But mm -hmm. Another example would be open plan workspaces, which are particularly bad for people with autism, but I think are bad for everyone as well. And if we design ways that people can retreat to quiet spaces when they need to do deeper thought, that benefits everyone. Yeah, it's a that is a a great point. I worked once in an open plan workplace. It's 
and everyone felt like they couldn't get up and walk to someone's desk because they were bothering someone else. They literally chat. I mean, I could see them <laughs> 10 feet, right? 10 meters away. Hmm. They're, they're chatting. Like, and when you say chatting, you don't mean verbally chatting. Yeah, electronically chatting. Electronically <laughs> chatting, right? And if you wanted to actually talk or take a phone call, you went into a conference room, right? So it was, yeah, I felt like I'd, I was in church. <laughs> no loud, only whispering, no loud talking, no talking amongst yourselves. So, but yeah, allowing that helps, allowing these things helps everyone. You know, the mm. visual ideas of where they're going to go and what it's going to look like uh, would benefit everybody. Make yeah. it more likely people are going to show up on time and less stress, right? Less stress, less worry. Mm. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so those are all great ideas. Visual directions, questions in advance, and then, of course, on the job, agendas in advance, anything for review in advance. Uh, and those are simply best practices, right, of the mm. best companies out there so that mm. when you meet, you have a discussion about the work. You're not telling people about the work, mm. right? You're putting people in a room not because you need to subject them to the same information at simultaneously, but because you want to have conversation about it. Yep. You want to hear people's thoughts. So that's the important part anyway. Hmm. And that's hard to do via electronic chat. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is challenging. Right. And words, yeah, sometimes the written words are can be, in my experience, can be misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. So which is usually when I pick up the phone <laughs> and call somebody like why don't we talk about this? I think we're, you know, we're missing each other somehow mm. in that regard. Um, so those are, yeah, those are all great best practices. I love the visual mm. direction idea. I know in the past I've definitely gone to places beforehand, you know, like the week beforehand or tried to figure out exactly like where is the door? Like mm. really smaller companies are in these office parks. And they all look the same. It's not well marked. Where yeah. am I trying to get to for this? Hmm. So. Yeah. And if you're hiring someone who is, I don't know, an investigative journalist, then maybe that's a, a good thing <laughs> to do to make it hard for them to find their way in. There you go. It's part of problem solving. Can you find <laughs> it? Can you get yeah. here? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, sometimes GPS is not your friend. So. Um. Uh, from the, so we talked, uh, we talked about different things for kind of neurodivergent folks for ADHD and, uh, autism spectrum disorder and how those can translate to being better, kind of better for everybody and how we, how different people process things differently, even if there's not some specific deficit diagnosis attached, right? And, um, what are some of the, what are some of this, just flipping it over, uh, what are some of the strengths of uh, folks who have, you know, ADHD or have, or 
on the autism spectrum disorder for bringing those folks into a company. I know we're having like a hiring chat on the messaging thing, but I think it's important that um, for a lot of different reasons that we have a diverse group of folks kind of coming to bear in the things that are being developed. And so I think it's important that we do better at that, to do better at product development and, and ultimately messaging to the market. Hmm. Yeah, and I'll try and weave in some of the, I guess, the messaging principles as well. In terms of the strengths, I'll turn to the Neurodiversity in Business report, which was a survey of UK-based companies where they looked at what are the things that people are struggling with, but also what are the, the strengths and advantages that neurodivergent people can bring to the workplace. And the advantages identified by their managers were creativity, problem-solving, and hyper-focus, meaning that if you give someone who's neurodivergent a problem that they're deeply interested in and explain the context, explain why they're doing a task, they're likely to be able to get into a state of hyper-focus and come up with creative solutions and get it done very quickly to a high standard. But if you give them a mundane task, which has no explanation of why it's significant to the company, then they're likely to not want to do it and they'll get distracted and it will take a long time to finish it. So there's a, again, I think that's generally a best practice of Simon Sinek's book, The Power of Why, and explaining why it's important to do a particular task and, and helping people align their work with their strengths. In terms of messaging, one thing I, I'd like to share is around the, the importance of getting the quantity of text and the way that it's conveyed right for people who might be dyslexic. Because often mm -hmm. in the ADHD and autism sector there's a lot of overlap with other comorbidities including dyslexia and we had some feedback early on that I had built the website in a way that works well for me where I really like reading lots of text I like the detail whereas a lot of people don't like it and what we've now opted for is a model where on our website the initial amount of text is very brief we only have probably 100 words in total on the, the web page. But then in each of the sections, we've got, for example, how is Focus Bear different? And we, we have a section built by people with lived experience. And then there's a little drop-down arrow next to that. And if you click on that, then you see a lot more information. And the same thing for the, the other parts of the page. So we've tried to, to make it to work with people who, who have different text processing styles and we have video as well. We've also thought about the font that the initial version of the page, it had some graphically appealing textures in the background that our designer really liked. And we had feedback from people who were dyslexic that it made it really hard for them to read it, that the page felt too busy and it was hard for them to concentrate on the text. So we've got rid of a lot of the background fuzz and we've also changed the fonts that we use on our website and our, in our app so that it's easier for people who might be dyslexic to read. We've got options to change to the open dyslexic font and the Poppins font, which are better for people who have dyslexia. And that might be something for other companies to consider too, making sure that you're testing your website with people who are dyslexic and 
who have different neurodivergences and making sure that it's actually possible to absorb the marketing messages that we have because otherwise you're losing a whole subset of the population. It's interesting because I've certainly considered a contrast, right? Some of the typical things that at least in the U.S. Uh, are required at certain levels of company growth uh, around mm. legibility and around uh, color contrast. There are a few different ones. Um, and But I hadn't heard that there was a font, like an, you called it the open the dyslexia font. Yeah, there's a few fonts and and the, the research suggests that there's no one gold standard font for dyslexia, but what actually helps is if people can choose the font. And I think for websites, that's fine. People can use Chrome extensions to change the font, but if it's in an app, then it's a bit harder for them. So it might be something to consider as part of accessibility settings. That's one thing that we added recently, the ability for people to choose their preferred font including Comic Sans, which I despise from a design perspective, but is apparently quite good for some people. Yeah, I would not have guessed that. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, yeah, when we talk about inclusion and access and, uh, you know, we can, it's a, it's a, we continue to learn about, other becomes important to kind of include more and more people, right? As we learn, hmm. uh, as we learn more, you know, we do better along the way. So yeah, uh, allowing people to choose their fonts. Yeah. That's really only something I thought about relative to people who, you know, were literally in their eighties who had asked me to help them with some things. And I went online and looked for like, what are, and it's like sans serif, X high, so I printed out like you know, don't condense the font, leave lots of white space. Um, mm. This is another you bring up another really important point about accessibility in fonts and uh, reading yeah. dyslexia. So, how many? I'm because people may not know. Uh, do you have any data? What data do you have on the prevalence? You know, incidence prevalence of neurodivergence kind of generally in adults. The or stats kids. indicate around, yeah, in adults, the stats indicate that it's between 15 to 20% of the population. And that's probably an underestimate because we know that, wow. for example, women are less likely to be diagnosed with especially autism and ADHD because it presents differently. So that there's, I think, quite an increase in diagnosis rates at the moment as psychologists and psychiatrists become more aware of how it manifests in, in people who weren't hyperactive as children or weren't doing the stereotypical autism things of lining up their toys in a row. And I think because there's more acceptance now as well, people are, are more open to looking into it. We're moving away from the deficit model and hearing from influencers who have done amazing things with their career and they talk about how the ADHD is a superpower, for example. And I think mm -hmm. similar for dyslexia that I've, one of the people that I know, he's got an email signature which says, I'm dyslexic, which means you should expect big ideas and small typos. 
That's great. Hmm. I love that. That's terrific. Uh, wow, fifteen to twenty percent. I would have, I would have never guessed. And what's interesting, what you mentioned about women being kind of under, you know, it being an underestimation and presenting hmm. differently, is that this is a couple decades ago uh, that they determine women were are more likely still are more likely to suffer heart attacks and die than men because women present differently. And who had they mm. done the bulk of the research on in the past, right? The young, healthy male, you know, mm. 18 to 35. So mm. uh, they didn't understand that it, it can present very differently in women than it can in men. Yeah, so, and I think there was learning. another example of people in the, the crash test dummies that they were designed for male bodies. And so cars were being built in a way that was going to reduce the incidence of injury for males, but actually made things worse for women when they were in an accident. So hopefully we can start to factor in more diverse populations when we're testing our medical devices to make sure they work for everyone. Yeah, ab yeah, 100%. Absolutely. So yeah, and I think the the not to the spectrum of uh, people that you want to have us evaluate what you're doing and look at what you're doing and work at the company and more diverse on in all ways. Uh, the better you said earlier, you know, the better your product's going to be. Hmm. The more sure. likely you are to be successful, right? And the, the research backs that up. So. Uh, hmm. So that, yeah, that's great. Um, was there anything else you were hoping I was going to, I have a couple more fun closing questions, but before that, uh, was there anything you had wished I had asked you that I haven't asked that you wanted to share? Maybe the engineering approach of marketing, the, or the messaging. I, sure. That's I don't know that I, I've got a huge amount to share there apart from just doing experiments, for example, exp looking the typical A-B testing approach of changing up the main title on our page and looking at what that does to conversion. And I find that quite fun because in the past I'd seen marketing as a bit of a dark art and more of an art than a science. But I think <laughs> with the, the modern tools that we have where starting to see how it, it can be quite a, a scientific process and experimenting in ways like that and, and letting the whole team have ideas about what could we change here and how could we make it in a way that's going to be more convincing for people and being able to run those experiments. I love that aspect of it. I love the idea, use the word experiments. I love the idea of, right, it's a design of experiments, right? We mm. call it, you know, marketer, marketing people, a B testing, right? We're going to try, we're going to send out a thousand emails. We're going to put one subject heading on one and another one on another one, right? Or like you said, change it up on the website and see what shifts up with the traffic, right? Hmm. So, but it's, it's a design of experiments for, you know, what all the variables are and changing them in a thoughtful way and then seeing what the data says. Hmm. Yeah. Takes the ego out of it. It, it uh, yes, it takes the ego out of it. Um, and I think that is, 
it's fascinating that uh, it's fascinating that you found that there are more kind of uh, thoughtful ways of doing marketing, right? That are more data driven, right? Hmm. Calling them experiments and calling them variables and using uh, making me think about using I use language in marketing that um, in medical devices that ties out to design control, which is an FDA and kind of an EU and a, they're harmonizing, you know, the, Aust the Australian code as well. Uh, it ties to that so that we're all speaking from the same language, but I love the idea of calling, instead of it calling AB test, why do we need to call it AB testing? Why do we need to come with some completely different name for what is an experiment with, right? With, <laughs> hmm. You know, yeah. we're testing which variable, you know, one of two works the mm. best. And what's the data from that? So that's what, that is exactly what it is. <laughs> mm. You have me thinking. So uh, it's, it's anything else? No, fire the closing questions at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to your past self when you started Focus Bear, what would it be and why? Don't outsource the marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hired a marketing agency for a while and, I mean, part of it was good. I think they did a good job with the brand and the, the visual identity that I think it would have been better if I had taken ownership. I, I felt like it wasn't something that I could do, that it wasn't my skill set. And that's not really true. It's something that I'm growing into. And that the more time that I put into it, the better I grasp of the subject that I have and the better our overall messaging will be. So I wish I'd started earlier with that. There you go. I love that. I, I love that. I think that yeah, you know your mar you know the target audience, right? If you know the target audience the best, that's the most important that's the most important thing to know in order to do the design work. That's what has to inform the design work. So hmm. uh, and this is the other one I wanted to ask you. So given the fact you're from Melbourne, so you essentially live on a I know it's a continent, I understand this. It's a very, very large island. <laughs> If you were standing on a desert island and could only have one piece of technology from Focus Bear, like one piece of it, not all of it, what would it be and why? I think your Focus Bear would be at all helpful in that situation. I don't think I'd have many distractions <laughs> to worry about and it would be an existential crisis, but maybe to lift my spirits, I think the motivational message each morning, we use open AI to create a customized motivational message. So maybe having that each day that it can tell me, you can do it, Jeremy, you can survive, you can build that hut. That you might can give climb me some that hope. coconut tree. Yeah. All right. Motivational message. I like it. Uh, 
So that is that is all I have for today. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Message Engineer Podcast. Really enjoyed talking uh, with you about uh, how you've navigated this journey uh, with ADHD and Level One ASD uh, in developing Focus Bear, um, and you know, as a founder with a nine to five. Uh, is is really fascinating. So uh, congratulations on that. And uh, if people want to find you, where should they where should they go? You can find me on LinkedIn, Jeremy Nagel, linkedin.com slash in slash Nagel Jeremy, I think is the URL. Or otherwise on focusbear.io if you fill out the contact form there. I check all those emails. Ah, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much today for your time, Jeremy. It's been a it's been a joy and a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks a lot for having me on. So we'll see you next time on Message Engineer. Be sure to follow and subscribe. That's it for now. <laughs>